Welcome to the D-Spot Podcast. Dr. Dana McNeil is a licensed marriage and family therapist who specializes in working with couples using the Gottman Method. Her evidence-based practice provides support for the wide range of relationship issues that modern couples face. By using her open, affirming, and outside-of-the-box thinking, Dr. Dana is able to approach her work with couples by bringing both insights and tools that reflect the realities of today's complicated relationships. Dr. Dana features guests on her podcast that include a unique array of celebrities, CEOs, influencers, and everyday folks who are all working on navigating new conversations about how society views what goes into a successful relationship. And now, here's your host, Dr. Dana McNeil. Hello, and welcome to the D-Spot podcast. Today, I am delighted to introduce you to a colleague and friend of mine, Shira. Shira has so many things to learn about. Let me tell you a little bit about who she is. She has advanced training in both the Gottman Method and emotion-focused therapy. So she's a rock star with couples. She practices an integrative approach, which focuses on helping couples and individuals learn how to work with their emotions, unhook from perpetual conflict, and find a tangible road for navigating relationships. I love how she phrases that. She has a special focus on treating attachment disorders for adult children of severely mentally ill parents. And she also, as if that's not enough, she's a writer. She's a an educator. She's a speaker. She has been a regular contributor for publications including Goop, Medium, Mind, Body, Green, as well as a TEDx speaker. So we have some royalty in the house today. Um, she has been a guest on multiple outlets and podcasts. She's presented at TED Women Leadership Conferences. I mean, she's even co-hosted two seasons of a podcast called Raising Gen Z. I do not run with a tame crowd. She is a very amazing person, and I'm so very, very grateful that you're here. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dana. I'm so happy to be here. I'm honored as well. <laughs> oh, you're so adorable. We met at a talk that we were both giving talks for Therapy Reimagined. Is that where we met? Yeah, okay. A couple of years ago. Yeah, it was COVID, right? Was it COVID? Yeah, we were all COVID. video. And didn't you have like an app at some point too for like mindfulness? and A med meditation app. Yes, that came and went. <laughs> you do it all. So Hi, welcome. There's so many things we could talk about, but one of the things that I was hoping we could pick your expert brain about today is this issue of how do you handle being attracted to someone when you're already in a committed relationship? Because that comes up for our clients and sometimes there's embarrassment and talking about it because they worry that therapists are going to judge them and they certainly don't feel like they can tell their partner about it. So I'm hoping we can pick your brain today. Uh, absolutely. And I, you know, when you've been doing this as long as we have, um, you're dealing with it so much. And part of me thought, well, has done such a deep dive with this, not only as um, a hedge against it happening again, let's say when you're repairing infidelity, but how to get out in front of it, because the likelihood that you will be attracted to someone else while you're in a long-term committed relationship is very high. Yeah. Is like it's a it's probably a, a when rather than an if for most people. Yeah. And so I think let's take the shame out of this scenario. Let's say it's probably an assumption we can make. And then where do we go from there? 
So do you want to talk a little bit about maybe what the difference is between what might be considered healthy attraction versus something that is perhaps problematic? Ah, <laughs> that's a great question. You know, I, I'm sure it exists on a spectrum. It might start out as something that feels fairly innocuous, uh, a light flirtation, somebody smiling at you. I mean, a lot of these things begin at work. Um, you know, John Gottman loves to use, I think, in one of his books about, you know, going down to the barista at the uh -huh. corner yeah. and then telling you how great you look when, you know, uh -huh. you can't get you can't get your partner to, <laughs> to bat an eye or rather look up from their phone. You know, for women, I've I've noticed that they tend to wrap more meaning around this. Mm. Um, and we're meaning seeking creatures and we're storytelling creatures. Mm. So for as a guy, it might be something, and I don't want to make categorical generalizations, I but let's say for, gotcha. yeah. for some folks, let's put it that way. Some folks, uh, it might be just a physical, like a physical or sexual attraction, a kind of energy there. Mm. And for, um, other folks, they might say, mm, this means something oh, wow, maybe this is a sign from the universe. Mm. Maybe I've been so lonely, like here's this connection. Ah. And so you could you could take, it's not as if I want to say we're, we're writing the script moment by moment, which is so fascinating. So something that could be kind of healthy or sweet or something that isn't turning into, let's say, obsession, but it could, depending on how much stock and how much we feed that loop. It, it can ah. become... A loop, an obsessive loop, an addictive loop. I mean, we can run down the rabbit hole with that one. Because I'm thinking that I have heard some therapists or sex experts talk about this idea of like, maybe you have the hots for the person that's the barista that gives you your coffee in the morning and you don't have more of a relationship with them, but you're fantasizing about them when you're with your partner. Like that, that might be a healthy thing for some, you know, for some clients because it gets their motor revving. It brings a little extra zhuzh in the bedroom <laughs> so that like, maybe that's a positive thing that helps their lovemaking because they're not going to take it any further. Right. Exactly. And so, yes. but what you're saying is that's all fine and dandy. But when you start putting meaning to it, then you're like, oh, I really would like to know what it's like to have sex with them versus fantasizing about them in with my partner that we can then be like, oh, and look at the way that they gave me coffee and maybe they're supposed to be in my world. And then we start creating a relationship that's not actually happening. Yes, absolutely. I mean, and the other piece of this is uh, what's your relationship to your boundaries like? Ah. So healthy attraction could be, okay, this is not interfering. Maybe this is a, a fantasy kind of, as you said, mm -hmm. maybe it, you know, primes the pump, if you will, mm -hmm. but, but it turns into, oh, wow, my boundaries are kind of weak or they're kind of loose. This is where I think you get into tricky ground. And mm -hmm. I don't think people necessarily, even the relationship to boundaries, I mean, when we do this work, especially for infidelity repair, we start on the floor, which is, okay, what are boundaries? Like, what's your relationship to even the, your definition of boundaries? And I think the subfloor of that is what's your relationship to emotional regulation? Mm. So, you know, as, as you try to restore trust, we, we have these higher levels understanding of trust, right? Transparency and fidelity and um, commitment to, you know, never harming anyone and, you know, a way to move through conflict and communication. But 
I think at the absolute core, like the atomic level, what is your relationship to your capacity to regulate your emotions, your feelings, your impulses? And I think for me, that's where mindfulness really comes into play as a, a process that you have with yourself. And I think when there's been infidelity with your partner, what I found is it's not enough to just have your partner say, okay, you know what, I'm in therapy. Um, I'll never do it again. You know, I love you. You know, I'm not going there. What I found is that isn't enough for many people. They need to know, well, what's that process look like? How do you discern? How do you stop your impulses? How how do you manage these intense maybe emotions or feelings or attractions if they ever arise again? And so making it so explicit um, is so helpful in terms of reestablishing and restoring not only trust between a couple, but um, trustworthiness within the individual. A hundred percent. I Every time I work with a couple where there's been infidelity, there's that component of, I need you to report back to me how you could get into a space where this felt like an option for you. And you need mm -hmm. to let me know what you're going to do because you will find yourself in this position again. Once we get out of survival mode, right? And things are all system go again and we start taking edge of the other for granted or life gets crazy or we're not hyper-focused on repairing the relationship, you still mm -hmm. have the DNA that could put us in this situation again, right? And so exactly. what is your coping skill plan? What's your insight that you drew on and what's What's going to keep us safe? Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. I love that, us safe. What's yeah. going to keep us safe? That's beautiful. Because if you can't do that, then how can you ask your partner to sign themselves up for a potential minimal 50-50 risk that they're going to find themselves this place a year down the road? They're going to do all the hard work of trusting you and forgiving you and finding space to open up for you again. And then it's like, and we could return here right? <laughs> yeah. And that yeah. makes them feel foolish. And then they're going to withdraw or withhold and like kind of be in like a wait and see. And then we can't uh, do work with you to repair. Yeah. And the anxiety will always be there. The anxiety will always be there. So I think relative to that mindfulness-based process, right? As opposed to shaming and blaming or white knuckling yeah. and, you know, I want to say suppressing or compartmentalizing uh, a lot of people, you know, avoidance tend to do that very well. Mm -hmm. I invite a conversation that is based with curiosity and compassion, not as in compassion as permission. There's a lot of confusion around that, but not compassion as permission, but permission to sit with what's arising. Hey, I'm really attracted to this person. You know, they're so generous with their attention. And I haven't been able to get my partner to look up from his phone or, you know, we, we always just talk about logistics. We haven't had any emotional intimacy in I don't know how long. What's that about? How do you kind of sit with the discomfort, either what's pulling you towards someone, because sometimes it could be that maybe you're in a happy relationship and you're just feeling drawn towards someone. Maybe it's the novelty aspect or there's something about the connection that is lovely and affirming, or you're running away from something, maybe all kinds of things you might not be able to look at. And so your attention turns, turns towards an energy that can feel very gratifying and um, compelling in the moment. 
do you find that there's attachment styles that are more likely to find themselves vulnerable to this sort of interest? I would want to say insecure, (laughs) (laughs) whatever fits under the umbrella of insecure. But you know, I've had securely attached situations with couples as well. So um, I, while the attachment piece is a huge, uh, huge piece of it, and especially I think the opportunity to restore secure attachment with a couple that um, has been damaged by, you know, by the kind of attachment injury that is a betrayal, I think it's really important to get clear on what you're saying yes to. And I think in our society, especially now, I don't know if you feel it, Dana, but there's such an erosion of faith um, in our institutions, all kinds. I mean, we feel like there's a lot of social and moral and political upheaval, and there's not a lot to sort of help us stay contained um, in a sense that integrity matters. Let's put it that way. Not, not. I'm even talking about social media and all yeah, the media yeah. and conditioning. But that aside, it's really hard to stay aligned with your values in in a time where we feel like a lot of us are in free fall. You know, we're not getting the kind of perhaps social or familial or institutional support maybe many of us maybe grew up on or or felt maybe a false sense of security in. But I think that's a component too. It feels like the fabric of society is eroding a bit. And so I think it's, it, it influences us. Um, and when these moments occur, it's, it's really an invitation to ask yourself, okay, so, so what are my values? Where is my integrity? What matters most to me? You know, I could be pulled over here, but what am I saying yes to? What am I making an agreement to? And I feel strongly, and I, I know you do too, that a relationship, an agreement is not this static it's not the static thing you said, yes, you said I do 15 years ago. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. something that's dynamic and it's living and it's breathing. And it's really something you have to choose every day if it's going to be vibrant and alive, you know? So what I hear you, you're making excellent points. And I think that we don't talk enough about the first part of what you said, which is there's not a lot of street cred or celebrating having values and morals these days. It's almost like suspect. And it seems to be more closely aligned these days with negative aspects of a political position, right? That you're suspect and that what does that mean about what you're affiliated with versus who you are as a person? And so if there's not much celebration that you live in alignment with your you know, moral compass, then you are going to have more difficulty figuring out what that is so that when you have these situations that are put upon you and you're stressed and you're feeling unloved, unvalued, unseen, and whatever, that it's going to be harder for you to like reinforce that for yourself. And so that's setting us up to kind of like find ourselves unwittingly in a situation where an innocent flirtation can get out of hand because we're not looking at what are we putting in place to make sure that I'm living in alignment with my moral compass. Yes. Yes. And that has to be something that you're in active relationship with. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a given. It's something that you're either reinforcing and supporting and nurturing or you're not. And I think that what you're also saying is that because there's so many distractions these days and we're almost sort of 
to survive have made decisions to go on autopilot, especially in light of COVID, that we can just find ourselves in situations where we haven't been like, is this really a good idea for me to do? Should I really keep going back to the coffee shop where I have fantasies about the barista? That's probably not going to turn out good because I could have a day where I'm a little off or my partner and I didn't have like a great ending or connection before I left for the day. And then I'm more open to like having somebody interfere with this connection that I have with my partner because I'm not being mindful about and intentional about my behaviors. Absolutely. And I think the other piece is that, and you know this, that, you know, at the beginning of the relationship, it feels so organic. It feels so effortless, the connection, the attraction, the yeah. sex feels spontaneous there. There's a quality, a, a wonderful quality of that courtship experience that is really difficult to recreate once you're in the companionate phase, once you yes. know, you've got Once the kids. The new relationship energy has dissipated from the room. Yes. Yes. And I find many clients struggling so much that they feel there's, I want to say first, the longer it's been since they've been intimate in a satisfying way, it almost seems like the gulf just keeps growing and growing where the idea of talking about it, the idea of getting out of that kind of, um, I don't know what it is, sort of like sense of malaise or torpor that it's just, it's hard to have those conversations. It's hard to renegotiate. It's hard to say, Hey, I really miss you. You know what? We've been together, but we've never really talked about sex, <laughs> right? We don't know how. And so the pull to do something that feels so much easier, feels strong, something you don't have to, it's not so effortful, right? Couples therapy is effortful. You're really in it. <laughs> You're raising a really interesting point that I know that you are also experiencing because you and I both work with clients that come to us wanting to open up their relationship or are at a, a partner. And what I find not astonishing, that feels like a big word, but like interesting is that there's couples that are not willing to have the conversation that you are discussing right now. Like I'm not feeling like I'm getting my needs met or we're not connecting the way that we used to, or I miss you. Something that sounds vulnerable, right? So their alternative is they're coming to our offices being like, so I think we should open up the relationship. We want to come in and negotiate the terms of that because I don't want to deal with part A. So how about if I get that new relationship energy from someone outside of our relationship so I can stay with you and not have that uncomfortable conversation and we'll open up? Yes. <laughs> Talk about that, love, because that is a part of what we do these days. So interesting. Well, I Dana, you have a lot more to say about that than I do, but it it's a misconception about what open open and polyamorous relationships are. I think you if you're not down for the conversation, if you're not down for sitting with everyone's feelings and holding space, compassionate space, even if it's something you're not in agreement with or you find upsetting or very vulnerable, then it's not a good option. I mean, sometimes I thought, okay, maybe if both of them are super avoidant, <laughs> maybe that can work out. That could be one, one arrangement, temporary, but I, yes, <laughs> temporary. Yeah. But I find the folks that are really willing to sit with the things we've discussed and um, really have patience and compassion 
and also very good boundaries. My goodness. Um, if you don't have boundaries and I love Terry Reels, um, Terry Reel has this beautiful, it wasn't in his last book. It was the book before, I think it was Fierce Intimacy, where he talks about the outer and inner um, boundaries and the outer boundary, meaning what keeps you, what keeps the world at bay, what keeps, right, somebody coming at you with an inappropriate ask or with anger or or something. Um, but then he speaks about the inner boundary, which is what you have internally to keep your worst impulses, your anxiety, your compulsions, your anger uh, at bay in order so that you can create safety and emotionally emotional safety, but also vulnerability. You being able to regulate yourself makes it possible, yeah. makes all kinds of intimacy possible because right. If you have all protection, there's no connection. And, but if you don't have that inner sense of that inner boundary, you're not safe. You're not trustworthy. You actually don't have the capacity to create safety for your partner or for yourself. So this is why it's so essential. I mean, the good news is that making it explicit, defining it can be so helpful for couples or couples. <laughs> it can be so incredibly helpful because then you know where you, there's a landing place. There's a, there's a landing place for you when you run into trouble. And if you don't have a landing place, then I think it can get very scary. So how do people get started? This is a, an important conversation, and this is the kind of stuff that you work with. How would you guide your clients to start recognizing what's the boundary that they need to set? How do they be mindful about setting it? What would you encourage them to do? So I love, I've adapted Tara Brack. She's a wonderful meditation teacher and um, therapist. Uh, so I've adapted her RAIN practice for this kind of work. And RAIN is an acronym. It's a self-compassion practice, but I've found that it's the most approachable way, even if you're not a meditator, you don't have to meditate. It helps. <laughs> you do. <laughs> it helps in lots of parts of life. Yes. It really helps. But the RAIN practice is an acronym for R is recognize, A, allow, I, investigate, and N for nurture. So mm -hmm. I'll give you a scenario. So recognize would be first allowing for whatever thought or feeling or sensation or story, right? Oftentimes with a negative emotion or, or energy, right? Could be something in the body. Just recognize that it's coming up. Okay. So this in, invites self-awareness and the allow is the permission to have it as opposed to repress. so let it come in i see the cute barista i'm like having some thoughts i let it come in i don't beat myself up mentally i don't say like you're a horrible person for having a thought right you're just yes. like it's a thought it's not a punishment it's a thing that's coming in okay exactly exactly um don't go to the blame shame the don't go to repress deny minimize split because Splitting, as you know, can move us in all kinds of places that we, we don't want to go. Like what is integration? What is integrity? It all comes from the root uh, to be whole. So allowing it, again, it's not compassion is permission, but just saying, I'm going to hold some space with what's coming up for me. I is investigation or inquiry. Um, and I invite clients to journal because mm. if they don't meditate and also this could be a very like heavy meditation, but so I, I say journal first and the inquiry is, all right, so what's, what's the feeling? 
or what's the sensation and how, um, what's the story around it? What feels most intense for me? Mm-hmm. And so this part, I think, is the juiciest part, which is just allowing whatever is going to come up. Maybe maybe it's not a sentence. Maybe it's just words. Maybe it's um, if you're dropping in, maybe it's a feeling of, of sadness mm-hmm. or loss. Maybe you are mourning some part of yourself that has no life or expression in your relationship. Maybe you're missing or mourning the connection that you have with your partner. Maybe your partner has doesn't see you, doesn't desire you anymore or in the way that you used to. I mean, so much stuff comes up in this part of the inquiry, you know, or maybe you feel kind of dead inside, right? It's like Esther Peril talks a lot about where has the Eros gone? And we often project the Eros out into a sexual connection with someone when we're not really doing the harder work of staying alive within ourselves. It could be so many things. So it's not that you have to do a deep dive on, you know, an inventory on your whole life. That's, I'm not asking that, but just whatever feels loudest. Yeah. And I think you're, you're definitely speaking to something that I hear from many of my clients when we let ourselves be quiet with it and kind of deep dive. It's not necessarily about the other person. It's the experience of the other person bringing in somebody I haven't seen in a while right? So that I feel attractive. I feel funny. I no longer view myself as a soccer mom. I'm not like, you know, a breastfeeding machine or whatever it is that you've come in your current like view of yourself to identify with. You got to experience a part of yourself you haven't seen and you've missed that person. And that other person that you had the fantasy about or the affair about lets you revisit a time in life, not necessarily that you want that person. And that's exactly kind of have an awareness of. Absolutely. Because there's so much projection involved, right? It's, I missed that part of me that feels sexy and like a woman, or they're seeing me in a way and I'm, I'm hungry for that. And I miss that. And then the last one is end for nurture. Of course, in Buddhism, it's non-attachment, which is really hard to get to if you're in the middle of a fantasy or an intense sexual attraction. So the nurture, I I kind of think of in two ways. So one is, what do I need to do to offer myself some loving kindness around this, right? Once you get to, and it may be different every time, like what arises for you, but how do I offer, this is some part of myself that wants to live, wants some kind of expression, how do I honor that? Like that so fundamental to being human. Sometimes we can so easily go into a shame spiral. I'm not a good person. You know, oh my God, I can't believe this is me. Mm. I'm, I can't believe I'm in this situation, right? Like I, I want to be a good person. I, I want to be committed to my partner as opposed to saying, okay, this, this is what this is. How can I hold this with love and then figure out, okay, is there something I need to do? Is there a healthy channel for this? right? Um, Do I want to connect to my partner? Is there a positive ask, right? In the Gottman language, is there positive ask that I could reconnect with him? Is there something I could do for myself that would make me feel more alive and more connected? How do I channel the energy, like the invitation for that energy in a way that is not destructive? So it could go in a lot of directions. Yeah. I love this idea that something that we usually would beat ourselves up about and then try to distract ourselves from and then try to forget about, you're saying that there's positive benefits and allowing yourself to be like, this is arising for a reason. 
And it's more about something that I internally am probably turning down the volume on, or I'm not sitting with because it's uncomfortable, because I don't know how to handle it, or I don't know how to have an uncomfortable conversation. And so the not avoidance of the gift of this thought, feeling, emotion is the thing that you're hoping that we can take away from this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the tough one, and this would be my question for you. So sometimes you you come with a positive ask to your partner yeah. and they're unable or unwilling to meet you. Yeah. And that that's tough, right? Because you're putting your heart out. You know, I want more physical intimacy or maybe I want to change the kind of intimacy that we're having. It's not, hasn't been satisfying or, you know. Well, and- um, in my work, though, I think that, yes, that's true. There's a vulnerability, but that exists whether or not you ask for it or not, right? I mean, you have mm-hmm. to hear yourself asking for your needs, even if the answer is no. Your partner's not required to do anything for you by the fact of your being in a relationship. It's always a gift. And so the fact that you're asking for it and talking about why it would be so meaningful gives them the opportunity that they're going to potentially be more compassionate if the answer is no, because you've been gentle in your request versus any of the four horsemen that you and I don't like to see happen in conversation. And maybe there's some version of compromise. Maybe it's just not, no, it's no right, not right now versus Mm. no forever. Absolutely. I had one, um, oh, I had one couple. They were together for 20 years the husband never in 20 years, I mean, he came from both like very Catholic religious, a religious family backgrounds. He had never pleasured his wife. Mm. Wow. That's a long time. <laughs> it is a long time. And it took every fiber of her being to get up the courage. Yeah. Uh, there was an affair um, and for her to turn towards him and say, I need this. I want this. Yeah. Is this possible? You know? Well, you give so much to your clients and you are such a light and you are so incredibly compassionate about the people that you work with. Just from sometimes when we consult with each other, I feel I feel envious of your clients because I know that they are getting such a loving experience with you. And, and I'm so happy to have had you meet with us. Where can people find you, connect with you, see you, talk with you? How do they look for you? Uh, we can always uh, check out my website, shiramyrotherapy.com. Um, I'm also on Instagram, uh, Shira. See, Shira Myro MFT. You can find me there. You can DM me. And um, yeah, I'm always happy to answer questions and and connect. And and Dana, I just want to say I'm I'm in awe of you and all the work that you're doing and all the training that you're doing. Incredible. And I I mean, for people who aren't familiar, the just your ability to bring all the incredible tools of Gottman and EFT into open and polyamorous relationships is such a bridge to healthy functional relationships in any, I want to say, in a, any type of grouping. And that makes me feel very uh, optimistic about the future. Uh, so, I want to express you. my appreciation. Uh, well, I, I am very grateful to have you in my world. So thank you for the kindness. It's, it's much appreciated. And thank you for being with us today. This was delightful and And you are a wonderful person. So thank you. Thank you, Dana. 
This has been the D-Spot Podcast with Dr. Dana McNeil. To learn more about Dr. Dana's practice, simply visit us at www.danamcneil.com.